to start off with a slide here uh, without the words on it, okay, the one without the words, that talks about something that I've gotten kind of interested in. Uh, it's called the study of micro-expressions, okay? And so, <coughs> micro-expressions, there's a, there's a show out called Lie to Me, where there's a guy who's sort of a detective, and he can figure out what people are thinking and stuff based on just little changes in their eyebrows, their cheeks, their lip, and so on. And so, I thought it was just kind of like fake, but I looked it up and it turns out that this is really a thing, where people like to watch politicians and the speeches they give, and then pick out micro-expressions where, oh, I don't know that, they're telling the truth there, you know, and so on. So, um, apparently, you can be trained in this, and it can be really helpful in, uh, in relating to people. So I thought we could just do a little, let's, let's pick one person from this group here and see if we can figure out the emotion that she's feeling. Okay, so let's pick this lady here, the, the lady with the shorter hair. Okay, and there's, there's seven primary emotions that you can spot in a micro uh, emotion. Okay, so a micro expression. So let's start uh, the way that we read, okay? So top left, she's second in there, the top left. What, what emotion do you think that is? Fear. Okay? Puzzle. This is fear. Yeah. Puzzle. Annoying. Annoying? Okay. <laughs> All right, and it's based on the eyebrows that you're getting that? Okay, let's go to the next one on the top line of her. What are you going to say about that one? Second from the right. Happy. 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 All right. Jubilant. What was that? Jubilant. Jubilant. Okay, so. Really? All right. Let's go to the second line. Three in. What, what's she, what's going on there? Fake smile. Fake smile? Okay. There's, you can tell it's not the same as her happy smile. Okay. Who thinks they're good at this game, by the way? Yeah, it's, it's not easy, is it? Okay, let's go. We're just good. There's only seven, so let's go far right there. Disgust. Disgust. Okay, yeah, that's one of the seven. So disgust is up there somewhere, so that's a good candidate. Okay, how about uh, line three furthest to the left? Ooh, what is that? Unimpressed. Hmm. Unimpressed. Hmm. <laughs> like if you go on too long, you'll see that on all of our faces. <laughs> okay. Uh, unimpressed. Maybe. All right. Now three over from that. That's more. Surprise. Surprise. Or fear. Yeah. I think that's fear. I think the bottom one's surprise. Ooh. Like diagonal to that. Those yeah. are either surprise or fear. The eyebrows are your tip off. Okay. So we can have surprise or fear. And then uh, I think maybe the easiest one, at least for me to recognize, is bottom two in from the left. Anger. Anger. Okay, so we have another slide that gives us the answers. And if, you, if we want, we can go back and forth a bit here. But okay. So happiness are the first, like, it goes across in columns, okay? So everybody's feeling happy on the left, everybody's feeling fear on the far right. Okay, so let's look at our subject there in the middle. She, uh, did, were you right? No. No? That second one was sadness. Apparently, if oh. both sides of your lips are pointing down for even a, a microsecond, it's a hint that there's some sadness. Uh, one side of your lip pointing down is contempt. 
Okay, so the guy on the bottom is really demonstrating that for us. <laughs> <laughs> He's showing contempt. And so is the lady on the top, but the woman in the middle, harder to tell. Uh, anger we got, fear and Rebecca, fear and Rebecca, fear and surprise, Rebecca cracked that code. Disgust we got, so sadness was one of these. So these are called micro expressions. And to me, they're interesting because they flash across a person's face. And sometimes, those of us that are really good at it, and I think you can get better at this, they give us a tip off on what someone's experiencing. And it, you can see how this could go sideways, you know, where you think someone is, is uh, afraid, but they're actually, um, what was it, surprised. So, like, to put too much weight on our interpretation of someone's micro-expression might go a bit far. But what's really interesting about it is that the study of this is based on every culture, not every culture, but multiple, multiple cultures around the world experience micro-expressions in the same way. And so it's got kind of a double ring to it, too. Because on the one hand, everybody that is experiencing happiness does certain things with their face, like almost everybody, apparently, according to this theory. But the other thing that's really interesting about it is if you force yourself to do the micro-expressions that are connected to happiness, you, you get a, a, a hormonal or an endorphin rush, tiny one, where you actually feel that emotion for a second. So you can make yourself feel these things by positioning your face this way. Now, this is the theory. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that I 100% believe that. But it's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? So today we started off with a question about what's the smallest thing that you use daily. And really today what we're trying to look at is micro-expressions of God's kingdom. And the theme, the, the reason that we're going there is we've been working through this book called The Creative Minority. And today the topic, the last chapter in the book, is about redemptive influence or redemptive participation. Now, many of you were there in the summer. When, do you guys remember the intern named Brett? And he did a talk in the summer and we all thought, wow, that was a really great talk. And he, his, his topic was about some of the really difficult things that had been happening in his life. You guys remembering that? Yeah. He was describing how um, he was working with, with kids and really awful things had happened. A kid had passed away, a kid had overdosed, and he was kind of feeling low. And I don't know if you remember this, but I love the way that he described this idea of redemptive participation, where he said rather than feeling the weight of having to solve all of the weight of the world himself, he started to tap into this idea that if he could have micro-expressions of redemption, those weren't his words, but they're what I want to use this morning, little micro-expressions of redemption in different aspects of how he operates in life, that he's participating in something that isn't just on his shoulders. You know, that if we all pick up the charge to have micro-expressions of redemptive participation, then together it starts to have a cumulative impact especially as a community. And so today when we talk about redemptive um, participation, I want to think in terms of micro-expressions of that. And the reason is because I don't think if we aim ourselves at grand redemptive acts that they're, one, sustainable, or two, realistic, if we haven't journeyed through the character development time of faithfulness in small things, right? So let's pray together. We're going to look at two parables from Jesus, and that kind of takes us deeper into the topic. 
God, open our hearts, open our minds, relax us into a space where we are uh, introspective, where we're reflective, where we're open to seeing something in ourselves, or in our church, or in our community, that you, Holy Spirit, want to show us. We give you this time, we give you this space, and we pray that as we've been challenged by this book to be a creative minority, that you would show us the right ways to be creative in how we are. So Matthew 13, there's a transition that happens. The way Matthew writes the book anyway, it shifts from Jesus having a presence in the synagogue to being more hands-on, being more out in the community, teaching and talking and hamming it up, if you will, with normal everyday folks in normal everyday settings. And what's great is, is Jesus is a master storyteller, and one of the things that he uses consistently is the art of the parable. Now what's interesting about a parable is it's not the same as like an allegory. A parable is meant to make one point, one very clear point. It's not meant to be kind of pulled apart and parsed and, um, you know, it, it's meant to just make one very clear point, but it's not always an obvious one. It's, it's one that actually invites you as a listener to think, to uh, mull it over, to examine what Jesus might be getting at. And that's what's cool about a parable, is it, it doesn't have the answer necessarily embedded in it. But what's interesting is that often the disciples will be like, so... We have no clue what you were saying in that parable, and Jesus kind of describes it. Um, and these two, I think, they're not, they're not too tough to get the main point. But today, uh, I want to actually challenge you to see if you can take a stab at what the main point is. Here's the first one. Man, that was just like seamless until I pointed it out. Uh, Matthew 13, uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. So we're just going to do the parable of the mustard seed first. Okay, so listen to this. Um, you don't have to read it. You can read along. But parables, uh, a reminder, is they were always spoken. They weren't things that people read because people weren't reading at the seashore where this might have been told or whatever. So they're, 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 they have to pack a powerful point in order to be memorable and to grab someone's attention. So see if you can challenge yourself to come up with what you think the point might be. Uh, in a list of parables, here comes another one. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. Okay, so we've probably, many of us heard that before, something similar. What I'd like you to do is turn to somebody near you and have a little chat about what you think it means. Okay? Go ahead. What do you think it means? Turn to somebody. You, you got to come down to one main point. Okay? What do you think the main point is? I don't know the recording so we don't get... Somebody, that's what's great about these is we all get to play. We all get to say, what, is, what, does, what does this mean? You know. So someone have an answer that they heard from someone that they want to yell out. They organize this into a quarter somehow. There's so many of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mustard seed is a seed of love. So in other words, it's the 
So a mustard seed is a seed of love, so you can plant a seed of kindness. And then it can really grow in its yes. Okay? All right? Someone else want to take a step? Yeah. You mentioned um, it's amazing what a small organization can do, like the food bank. Yeah. If there's the right people and God is the food. Okay, so a small act or a small organization, if it's, if it's connected to the right thing, can do something great. Yeah. Okay. One more? Okay, so there has to be some intentionality to plant that seed before any growth is going to happen. Interesting, right? How many of you have uh, read the story uh, Jack and the Beanstalk? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the worst at kids' stories. I always forget all these. I had to look up what it was about again. But there were magic beans. Magic beans that Jack traded the family cow for. Remember? So mom said, go sell the cow. He traded it to some guy for five magic beans. And he plants those magic beans, and then this incredible beanstalk grows, right? There's a sense that if the beans are connected to the right magic, incredible growth comes. And so I think to the point that we kind of came at together there, it takes planting it, so it takes an intentionality to say, I'm going to take the magic bean, I'm going to put it out there, or in the ground in the case of planting. So I'm actually going to participate with my influence. I'm actually going to participate, even in a micro-expression, in redemptive participation in what God is doing in the world. So I'm intentionally going to plant something. I'm going to do something that makes something start. Okay? And then, if it's birthed in the right soil, if it's like, like you were saying with the food bank, if it's, if it's aiming in the right direction, something that's connected to the kingdom of heaven, it holds incredible potential. If it's got the magic beans, it's really going to grow. Right? And so it's not just planting random acts of kindness. It's participating in redemptive acts along with God. And when we have that mixture, we see exponential magic kind of growth. Like growth from a different realm. Not the growth we're used to. Okay, let's go on to the next one. It's similar, and we're going to chat. Uh, hopefully we can pick a different talking partner this time. But um, next one, Jesus. another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, or leaven is, is in another translation. Uh, or if you make sourdough like the culture that you start, your starter culture. Okay, So it's like that, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay, that's the whole one. So uh, let's see if you can uh, figure out what is the main point of that parable? What is Jesus trying to find a different talking partner if you can and see if you can crack the code on that one? Like yeast, the woman took the Okay, so there's something about growth. Okay, the yeast makes it rise and grow. Okay, so something changes because of the yeast. Yeah. Someone else. Who becomes self-sustaining. Becomes self-sustaining. That was my partner. Yeah. All right. We all wondered who your partner was. That was true. My last partner. Oh. My second partner is a mystery. Although she was very smart. 
guys. We'll never know. All right. <laughs> Somebody else. What else? This side of the room needs one representative. Yeah, Jen. As faith, so if there's a little bit of it, it, it grows and changes things from there. Does that sound like a good summary? Okay, anyone want the last word on this one? Are you have their partner? Yeah. My partner, when you were talking about how it's alive. It's alive? It's like an infectious aliveness. Yeah. Okay, so that there's life in the leaven that actually alters the flower. That uh, it's a bacteria and it's alive. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus uh, picked a metaphor that usually was described as evil. So leaven was the thing you removed from your house at Passover. Because remember, the Israelites didn't have time to let the bread rise, so they would get all the leaven out of the house every year to remember how they had to hustle out of the house. So leaven had this connotation of something you wanted to kind of sweep every crumb of it out of the house because it has such a powerful uh, change agent quality to it. And so he picks something that's kind of provocative because people wouldn't normally think of leaven as like something that we're encouraging. And yet we know we need it for bread to rise. And so he picks this provocative image. But he picks one that um, I think demonstrates a transforming power. Right? So a little bit of leaven. If, if you take a little bit of your previous baked bread and you, you put it aside, it ferments, and it, and it is alive, and it grows to a point that when it's exposed to the next batch, it changes it, it alters it, it makes it like the first batch. And so we have a seed parable, and we have a yeast parable. The seed parable seems to be talking about how a small action can result, if it's, if it's the right action, and if we take the action, can result in an incredible outcome. The yeast parable seems to be more about when we have the right actions and or when something starts to change in us, the transformative power of God's kingdom can overhaul everything. The whole batch gets overhauled. Just a little bit of the good stuff changes us. Um, so full disclosure on Jack and the Beanstalk, I just corrected that the mom throws the seeds out the window because she's mad. There's nothing about Jack and the Beanstalk that I'm saying is good or like, <laughs> I'm just trying to say that if we have the right means, we have an incredible growth. That's all I'm saying about it because I don't even know the whole story. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the point is that when we have the goods of the kingdom of heaven and those are the beans that we plant, or the seeds that we plant, that's where we see a growth that's otherworldly, okay? that's not like what we're used to in the garden. And when we allow the kingdom to penetrate our hearts, we could say as one example of how yeast could work, it starts to work its way through everything in us. Everything that we do, everything that we're about starts to be affected by this transforming power, not unlike leaven has, the flower. So what I was asking myself as uh, I got to the end of these parables, and just to tie it back to the theme of the day, is redemptive participation can be incredibly small actions. Okay? 
So in fact, if they don't start with small actions, they're either not sustainable or not realistic. Because we might have some grand act that's like, look at, look at how I've partnered with the Father and, and what a saint I am. But if we don't have the, the characters to sustain things like that, that's built over a long period of time, then it actually uh, ends up amounting to not a whole lot. Maybe even counterproductive. Uh, so I was asking the question to myself, so how do we as a community think about being redemptive participators with the God of the universe corporately? How do we think about, as a, as a group, what our responsibility is as a creative minority in a city that might benefit from some of the right lease and some of the right seats? Okay? There's lots of ways that that could go sideways. But there's also ways that that could be really good and really helpful. In uh, a book that I'm reading these days, kind of along with Creative Minority, it's called Resident Aliens. And it's a, an old book. It's from the 80s. But it's a great book. Um, they talk about how, even in the title, you can kind of get a sense of what they're saying. How we can be residents in a world where we're a bit alien to it. So because of the kingdom and the values of the kingdom being how we're trying to live, we seem a bit like aliens, you know, as far as how we would uh, interpret things or how we would respond to things or how we would uh, step into things. And so in this book, they make an argument about how a church should operate in the world. In the world. And it's, 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 a great, it's a great book, and I wanted to read just a little section of it as something that can teach us something today. Uh, they actually draw from another book, which is called The People in the World by John Howard Yoker, another famous book back in, this one's more in the late 60s. Um, and he, he describes three ways that we can think about a church. Okay, I'm not going to go on and on here, so just hang with me for the three ways. Okay, we can do this. The first, he says, is the activist church. So the activist church is more concerned with the building of a better society with, than with the reformation of the church. So the activist church is kind of the, the, the church whose uh, main goals are connected to how they can change society. So how can we jump on board with things that people are doing around us that are good, activists? And, that, and, and that's kind of the... the the push or the um, measure of success, how active we are in society. And there's lots of good about that. He says the second thing is the, the uh, skip to the third. The second one is called the, building a little suspense here. So it's a kind of a weird word, so I got it. Conversionist, the conversionist church. And so he says the conversionist church it's kind of more aimed at individualism. That it's pointed just at individual people and them confronting the things that are wrong with themselves, the sin in their lives, confessing that those things are wrong, and then working on their piety, so to speak. So this is, this is we've got activism that's kind of outward oriented, and we've got conversion, uh, conversionist church, which is more about helping people realize that all that really matters is what's going on inside of them, and that's it. So don't worry about the world, it's too far gone. Just worry about yourself. Jesus will redeem and restore you. And when that happens, you know, maybe you'll, you'll have the odd chance to help somebody. And then the third one is um, not a combination of the two, but what they're arguing is kind of a bigger vision of what we corporately can be as a creative minority. And they call that the confessing church. So the confessing church 
Um, I just want to read their description of it because I think it's instructive for us. It's not a, a synthesis of the other two approaches. It's not a helpful middle ground of the two. Rather, it's a radical alternative. It's a creative minority, I might say. Rejecting both the individualism of the conversionists and the secularism of the activists and their common equation of what works with what is faithful. The confessing church finds its main political task to lie not in the personal transformation of individual hearts or in the modification of society, but rather in the congregation's determination to worship Christ in all things. Okay, so the overarching emphasis of redemptive participation, we could say, or in this case, of the confessing church, their MO, the way that we operate, the primary lens we should look through, according to Yoder, is this idea that in everything, we start with worshiping Christ. Which feels kind of like, oh yeah, of course, worshiping Christ. Like, how do we put skin on that? How do we translate that into actual action? Because that feels a little bit like a cop-up. Um, so he goes into a little more detail. He says that the confessing church, like the conver conversionist church, also calls people to conversion. It's not that the confessing church doesn't do that. It's just it's not its only task. It calls people to change. It calls people to allow that yeast, that leaven, to go to work on their character. But it depicts that conversion is a long process of being baptismally engrafted into a new people. That it's kind of not just this one moment, but that it's a new people, a new measure of society, where we as a church are an alternative that's alien to the way people operate in this world. That it's different, that it's countercultural. It engrafts them into an alternative way, a countercultural social structure called the church of all things. The, confess, the confessing church on the other side has no interest in withdrawing from the world, but it is not surprised when its witness evokes hostility from the world. So it's not trying to be all things to the world. It's not trying to be friends with everyone. But it's not not trying to be friends either. But it's not surprised when it doesn't go perfectly. And then finally Yoder says the confessing church will be a church of the cross. Which is never, you know, you know that's not going to be a fun one coming when you hear that. But it says that the cross is not a symbol for general human suffering or oppression. That's not what he means. He's not saying it's like we all just have to be beaten or something. He says rather the cross is a sign of what happens when you take God's account of reality more seriously than Caesar's or than the world. That's a challenge for us to look at, I think, as a church. Our vision statement, I think we should ask ourselves, does it line up with this, if we agree this, on this? We say that we're church with mission in mind, and we define mission as four different things. Number one, God's mission to restore and redeem his creation. So we want to be a church that confesses, uh, confesses in the way he's describing where we're worshiping Christ, in the way that we restore and redeem creation. So that means that how we treat the environment matters to us. 
that means that the way that we operate in issues around social justice matters to us. Because we're worshiping Christ in the way that we address those things. Not because we're joining a bandwagon of people that just feel good about doing something for someone else. Not that we can't join people, but our motivation might be a little bit different. You see that? Second one, church with mission in mind, is our personal mission. So this is sort of on the other side. This idea that as we become disciples following Jesus, we have an opportunity to step into our unique way of being part of the mission, or of partnering with God. Which might look like going to the store, having a really awkward um, interaction with someone at the till, where you kind of made them mad, realizing it, going back and apologizing. You know, that's like yeast that can have a huge spreading influence. Or it might look like whatever is bugging you today, putting it before the king of the kingdom and saying, how could I transform this situation to look more like you, Jesus? So mission, the first two is... is Church with mission in mind is God's mission in the world, our mission along with him. Because our city happens to be called mission, the people of mission. Church with the people of mission in mind. As we take redemptive, influential steps to be in community with people, we intentionally plant ourselves in places where we're with real people that have real issues, but that we can plant little baby kingdom seeds that grow into bigger more trustworthy relationships. Or we can land in places where yeast is needed, and we don't necessarily know how, but maybe by being there, we can change an environment. There is a story that I read in prep, and we're almost to communion, if you're getting antsy, we're almost there. A story I read about a, a group of international students, so kids from all over the world, got together and they were talking about how to spread the message of who Jesus is. That was sort of the point of their conference. And a bunch of people were talking about like tracks, and people were talking about multimedia, and people were talking about propaganda, and so on. And they went to uh, the, the young African girl that was there. And she said, in our country, in Africa, I'm not sure which country she was from, she said that when there's a village that we want to, um, to reach, is the terminology she used, what we do is we take a Christian family and we ask them to move. That's it. And then just by them being them in that village, the village usually ends up changed. So, wow. That is yeast-like. That is a small seed planted in, and it changes into something that, that hosts the birds uh, like in Jesus' parable. And end with this story, and then uh, we'll, we'll look at Jesus' metaphor, which, if you know, has leaven and seeds in it. <laughs> Some time ago, when the United States bombed military and civilian targets in Libya, a debate raged concerning the morality of that act. Some of you might remember that. It's quite a while ago. One of us witnessed an informal gathering of students who argued the morality of the bombing of Libya. Some thought it was immoral. Others thought it was moral. At one point, 
in the argument, one of the students turned and said, well, preacher, what do you think? The, the author says, I said that as a Christian, I could never support bombing, particularly bombing of civilians as an ethical act. Well, that's just what we'd expect you to say, said another. That's typical of you Christians, always on the high moral ground, aren't you? You get so upset when a terrorist guns down a little girl in an airport, but when President Reagan tries to set things right, you get indignant when a few Libyans get hurt. The assumption seems to be that there are only two political options there. Either conservative support of the administration or liberal condemnation of the administration followed by efforts to let the UN have. The author says, you know, you have a point. What would a Christian response be to this. Then I answered right off the top of my head, a Christian response might be that tomorrow morning, our United Methodist Church announces that it's sending a thousand missionaries to Libya. We have discovered that it's fertile field for some good news right now. We know how to send missionaries. At least it's a traditional response we could do. You can't do that, said my adversary. Why, I asked. You tell me why I can't do that. Because it's illegal to travel in Libya. Because President Reagan will not give you a visa to go there. No, that's not right, I said. I'll admit that we can't go to Libya, but not because of President Reagan. We can't go there because we no longer have a church that produces people who can do something that We once did. He ends the chapter this way. We would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world. That the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar. And that the main political task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost and are still willing to pay the price. Speaking of people willing to pay the price, on a night in a room, in Jerusalem, under incredible pressure, Jesus turned to the people that had been following him most closely. And he gave them two symbols. One with leaven, one with seed. The first was bread. Something that wasn't too hard to find. Something that was really familiar. And he equated bread to his body. He turned to his disciples and he said, see this? This bread is my body broken for you. This bread, this broken bread, this broken body is your invitation to redemptive participation. Will you be broken for the Father? And then he turned again to his disciples, this time with the cup, uh, with wine. Is a drink that's been fermented, started as a seed, turned into a grape, and eventually something they drink. That holds the same power in a metaphor that those, that those parables do. He says, see this wine? It's a symbol of a new, deeper, more fulfilling promise. A new covenant. And when you drink this, drink it remembering my shed that has created access to that life. So as we have access to
to that promise, we see this invitation to a new kind of promise, where we're restored, where we're redeemed. Not so that we can just exist in a place of utopia, but where we're invited to partner in redeeming in micro ways first that grow over time into bigger acts of faithfulness along with Jesus and the redemption.